So First Timothy chapter 2, from verse 1 to verse 7. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of things be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, do you have any thoughts or any topics or any themes that stand out to you? Something you'd like to pick up on or share? Okay, for me, I think um, verse 2 was what stood out to me. Okay. The second part, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Mm -hmm. I think God wants us a certain lifestyle God wants us to be, both as leaders and as people. And one of that is to lead a quiet and peaceable life. And godliness is what guides in living that. And that's what is good and acceptable to God. So it does the reminder to the kind of lifestyle we should be. Yeah. Thank you. Go on. Um, for me, I'm thinking and I'm looking at it and I'm saying to myself, how does um prayer for kings and prayer for people in authority translate to all men being saved and coming to the knowledge of the truth? So it's it's a question in my head and the question in my mind and I'm and I'm looking at it and wondering, you know, what um the writer was, you know, thinking of when he was writing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, thank you for those points. So to begin, we we have to situate this letter as much as we want to draw out the, the, the practical implications for us, right? And the theological implications of the letter. We have to first situate it in its historical context, right? We need to remember that Paul is writing to Timothy, who he left behind in Ephesus. And that's a very important context that a lot of things... In fact, practically everything that we're going to read here is primarily written to address the situation in Ephesus and in the broader Roman Empire at that time, but particularly written to address this church in their particular circumstances. And then when we understand that historical backdrop, we can then begin to, to, to um, draw out the practical implications for us. Okay. So picking up from that in verse 1, he says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So another way to read this is to say that the church in Ephesus, he's asking them to give first priority to prayer in each of the four different modes that he has mentioned. So if you remember in chapter 1, 
the first instruction he gave to Timothy was to command and rebuke, right? The elders, especially that they teach no other doctrine and that they don't dabble into useless and non-edifying disputes about the Old Testament or about the law and its application to the life of New Testament saints. So you would think that this duty of establishing the right doctrine would be the first and the highest priority when they come together. Because what he's doing from this chapter is that he's setting out the practical steps for ensuring order in their public worship, but not only in their public worship, but in their daily practical lives so that the church can be an effective witness in the very hostile environment in which it found itself. So even though there is the urgency of the issue of doctrine that he wants Timothy to address, he says that primarily his first ex exhortation right, that is that priority both in our lives and in the church should be given to prayer. And that's the first question I would like to touch. You know, why does Paul say that the first priority has to be prayer and not even teaching as the first priority? What do you think? Why is prayer the first priority in your personal life and in the church, in the context of the gathering of the church? Um, for me, I think it's it's true prayer. You actually reached like the heart of men, because it's not by what you say, it's by God um, first like doing a work in their hearts, and you get to that place by first praying. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. It's true prayer that you reach the heart of men, and you can even say that it's or not. You can even say it's correct to say that it's true prayer that you reach the heart of God. And the heart of men, right? Any other points there? Um, it this reminds me of what Jesus said, um, mm -hmm. when he was in the temple, you know, chasing out all who were selling and all that mm. my house shall be called the house of prayer. So that speaks to, you know, what God's intention for the church is. So it's a place mm -hmm. of prayer. Um, and then there's one other thing I wanted to say, but I can't remember again. I'll skip you. So Okay, sorry. If you remember, you can write in the chat. Thank you. That's a very good point. Jesus said, amongst all nations, the way that my house will be distinctly identified is that it will be a house of prayer. And I believe that the reason for this is because Jesus is trying to point the church or rather point us back to the fact that life at his heart is spiritual. If we don't appreciate the spiritual dimension there is to life, then even the gospel that we're called to preach will make absolutely no sense, right? Because if you take the gospel, for example, when you look at all men physically, it doesn't look usually to the eye that the one who has Jesus in his heart is better, is different, is more privileged in any way than most people who don't know Jesus or who outrightly refuse him. So we need to be able to, we need to find a way to get to the surface, to get underneath the surface, Right to get to the heart of what is there in order to be able to make even the gospel make sense. And Jesus is trying to remind the church that behind the physical reality of life, behind the physical struggles of life, behind the created order, 
there is an entire spiritual order and prayer is our primary mode of connection. And that spiritual order is where the father lives. I think that's what Judy just wrote in the chat, right? That part of why prayer is the first priority is that it's basically how we fellowship with the father. Yes. The father lives in the spirit. When Jesus was setting out his doctrine for worship, he said that God is spirit. God is spirit. That was the primary revelation that he wanted the woman at the well to go back with in fixing her desire to know the right place to worship. He says those who worship God will have to do it in spirit and in truth. So the God's creation is split up into the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And God has chosen to dwell in the spiritual realm. And you might think that God being spirit and being almost, should I say, manifestly confined to the spiritual realm is a disadvantage. But the spiritual realm is actually the realm of influence. Yes, it's the realm of influence. It's the immortal realm. That's the realm that births the physical. So if you look at the way creation happened, it's not so much that God got his hands dirty than it is that he spoke. He exercised his authority and everything in the physical creation began to move in the direction of the authority that came from the spirit being that God is. It was only informing man that God had got his hands dirty because there was a physical component man was that creature of god that was supposed to be the bridge between both that is supposed to be the bridge between both realms so that's an important first point that we have to lay to heart right that at the heart of life is spiritual and our father is spiritual and he dwells in the spirit so any activity that we do in the name of religion in the name of worship in the name of faith that does not connect to the spiritual reality is just dead religion, right? It's not touching reality. And it doesn't matter how faithfully and how zealously we do it. It's very easy for us to have an organized system because that's unfortunately what a lot of church life has become, a very organized system of community, of fellowship, of singing even, that, that does not go into the realm of the spirit. And this is the thing that Jesus always addressed when he talked about the praying hypocrite or the fasting hypocrite. And he was, when he taught his disciples about prayer, he warned them that when you want to pray, do not be like the Pharisees. Those people do not realize that prayer is a spiritual business. So they do it in order to be seen. They do it for an earthly reward. And the, the curse of such an existence is that they never get to do business with the realm of the spirit, which is a place where prayer really counts, which is a place where prayer really makes an impact. All that their prayer does is that it leaves an impression, no matter how strong, on the heart of men. But it never travels and journeys enough into the place of impact to really meet the needs of men and to satisfy the desire that is upon the heart of God. And so anything that we do in the name of spiritual exercise is supposed to um, terminate. It's supposed to find its terminus in the realm of the spirit. And so even our coming together, right, as believers, is supposed to terminate in the realm of the spirit. We're supposed to arrive at that place in the spirit where we meet with God because it's at that place where we are strengthened. It's at that place where the physical realities of life 
begin to find their answers, begin to find your solution. And prayer is the means by which we arrive there. It's the means by which we fellowship with the Father who's in, who's in the Spirit. I always say that in Christ, we've been blessed with so many riches, right? That's what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is no blessing that is left out of that arrangement. But you see, it's only when we begin to pray. Because those blessings are spiritual, and because they are locked up in the spirit realm, it's only when we begin to pray that they that the riches of those blessings start, we, we start organically and experientially seeing them in our lives. It's only when we begin to pray. And because we are physical beings, our life is occupied often with a lot of physical commitments, right? A lot of physical engagements. And so that means that by our very nature, we are prone to be worn out, right? By our very nature, we are prone to be, should I say, exhausted. By our very nature, we are prone to be earthly. Let's put it like this. And so it means that there is no amount of spirit life that we can have that will be enough. Because we are physical beings, we will always need to plug into the repertoire, the repository of spirit supply. Yes, we we'll always need to plug into it. You're going to need grace tomorrow morning when you wake up. You're going to need grace tonight when you go to bed. You're going to need grace three weeks from now. The fact that you are so full of grace today and you were able to walk in the paths of God does not necessarily mean that it will be the case tomorrow. You're going to need grace moment by moment. And it's only when we open our mouths in prayer that the riches of Christ's kingdom start, that we begin to lay hold of everything that is in that kingdom for us. Okay? So this is why prayer has first priority. But then he says that we need to pray for all men. Right? And the idea he has here, because he also says for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The idea he has here is the political and social instability that was prevalent in the first century. Right? You know, today, we, <laughs> I guess, for us, at least in our African context, in Nigeria, the thing that most threatens our stability, I guess, is elections, you know? So we usually pray into elections, and that's the clearest picture of what Paul is trying to say here. So, but the thing with elections in our time is that they are timed. We know, okay, the next election is in four years. It has a particular date, you know, um, and then we start praying that the, the country will not be turned into, into, into like bloodshed or a bloodbath or turmoil because of the election. And we began to see from 2020 that even advanced democracies, you know, like the United States, you know, we're almost at boiling point because of an election. And what happened in the first century was that they, they didn't need an election for the civil society to, to reach boiling point. At any point, at any point, literally at any point, the emperor could, could be assassinated. There could be a revolt on the emperor and that throws the entire empire into turmoil. It introduces a new a new leadership. Um, 
new new rules for engagement in society. There was a lot more brittleness to the political setup then. Not to say that there's no brittleness, right, for us in our time, but just to help us understand the context. That it was wise practically to lift up the emperors, even though they were not Christians, to lift up the political linchpins, the military linchpins, the economic linchpins of that time, even though they were not Christians, because their practical decisions could throw the entire land into turmoil and bloodshed. And like we, we've seen in Nigeria, that usually, you know, even in a season of election in some parts of Nigeria, um, whenever it is that violence breaks out, um, the primary demographic, right, that, that is hit, religiously speaking, is the church for some reason, right? Churches get burned. You know, pastors get harassed. Um, every problem, no matter how it begins, whether it begins as political or tribal, usually eventually boils down to religious, especially in a religiously charged environment. So a, a chaotic environment does not create the right atmosphere for Christian virtues to prosper. Think about if you are a soldier in a in a in the military. Let's say you're a Christian soldier in the Russian army right now in Ukraine, or vice versa. You're a Christian soldier in the Ukrainian army. A, 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 a setup, a situation of anarchy, which war creates or which disorder creates, places you every day in the middle of very difficult moral choices and places everybody else at risk. Right? At the, at the very least, until the Lord returns, it's our responsibility to ensure that we need to lift up our economic leaders, our political leaders, our military leaders before God regularly so that the kingdom of darkness, Apollyon, you know, uh, and the spirit of, of death and destruction that thrives on bloodshed, on chaos, on destruction can be kept from our land. Because war has a way of making a taste out of many people because often when war breaks out everybody forgets all the bad choices that we made collectively as a as as a society but also individually as people that led to the war and we are fixated on the brutality of the war itself and then the brutality of the war begins to convince people that it cannot be the case that there is a loving god who um, created a world in which this kind of anarchy and suffering is a possibility. Right? We don't often remember the, resp the, the human responsibility that was there, whether by us or by, our, or by our fathers or by just our neighbors, the human responsibility that is there in leading to that situation. So Paul invites us to always be praying for all men. Like Golda hinted at, um, men are also spiritual, right? And the same way that the spiritual realm is what influences, even subconsciously, the natural realm, a man's life is most influenced by the activities of his spirit than by anything that goes on on the external. And so it's possible that in liaison with the Father of Spirits, which is our Father in heaven, we can bring restraint to the spirits of men. If it's in the will of God, we can even turn the spirits of men, 
not by ourselves, right? But by supplications, by prayers, by intercessions, by thanksgivings, we can turn the spirits of men around to do the bidding of the Father. So does that make sense to us? Yep. Okay. And my second question then is, how would you differentiate supplications, prayers, and intercessions? I think giving of things is quite obvious, right? How would you differentiate supplications, prayers, intercessions? Are they the same thing? Yeah, all prayers, but they are all different kinds of prayers. Okay, how are they different? You have um, identified that they're different. Sorry, go ahead. Yes. Okay. So I can't remember. I know there's a word for supplication. I can't remember right now, but I know intercession. They're standing like in the gap of a cost mm. or a person. Okay. Then supplications. I can't. I can't remember how the particular words used to describe that. Okay. I think you, you like that was a good attempt. They are different indeed, and it can be very confusing sometimes to to realize the difference between supplications and prayers, especially. So supplication has the idea of making a request, right? And usually it's a request that is accompanied by um, earnestness. So you're asking for a need, whether on your behalf or on, the be or on behalf of someone else, you're supplicating, right? You're earnestly requesting a need. So that's what Paul is saying, that some of our prayers will be taking the practical needs, the practical, yeah, practical needs of men around us and bringing them to God, right? Now, prayers is a very general expression of communicating with God, right? Any act of communication that is an expression of the desires of the heart towards God is prayer. And so prayer is a bit more all-encompassing in that it's not just limited to petition or supplication, right? It's not just limited to the pressing in of needs. It's, it's that deliberate art of expressing desires towards God. Whether those are just desires of love, you know, or just desires of, you know, what happens when you come to a friend and you just begin to converse. You cannot categorize the conversation into very neat categories. You know, sometimes it can be, like there can be a request in there or it can just be a connection of the heart. That's what the idea of prayer is, that as we think about all men, we're supposed to express desires for them. These desires are different from supplication in that it may not necessarily be the things that they might need, as it were, but through our conversation with God, we are able to um, essentially pick up what's on his heart and express those desires to God. True prayer. Prayer is the expression of desires, the connecting of hearts, just that flow of communication. And he's saying that we should do it for all men. And then he now mentions intercession. Intercession is different from supplication. So it's not completely technically correct to say that intercession is the work that um, is praying for, is merely praying for other people. Because in supplication, right? you can be praying for other people as well in supplication. In petition, you can be praying for other people. But what intercession is specifically about 
And the word intercession itself, even in its original meaning, has nothing to do with prayer in that sense, which is why Paul was able to, to use it side by side with the word prayer, because intercession means to go between. In fact, the original word is interview, right? It is to bridge the gap where it is lacking. So the primary ministry of intercession that we have been given in the New Testament is bringing men to the heart of the atonement of Christ, right? To the heart of the sacrifice of Jesus. So every time that there is there is an injustice that we observe, every time there is a challenging situation that we observe, we are supposed to stand between men and God, right? And then what we're trying to do is to reconcile everything towards the atonement of Christ. So intercession is what you do whenever it is you are reconciling. Yes, that's intercession. We don't have time to go through the Old Testament and look at the word Paga that is translated intercession. You see that it's it's less about prayer, right, than it is about meeting, about meeting together, about bringing to the, together, about connecting together. So on one hand, there is the atonement of Christ, and that atonement of Christ has made the salvation of every man possible. That atonement of Christ has made the healing, the deliverance, the salvation of every man possible. But you see, not every man has come into the reality, into the richness, into the experience, right, of that salvation. And through priesthood, God brings us in between. God gives us that privileged position to stand in between, to reconcile men back to the position of the cross. So intercession is a very specific ministry that deals with reconciliation. Whereas supplication is purely the expressing of needs. But when we talk about intercession, we are dealing with the ministry of reconciliation. So that's the difference that Paul makes between them. Now, it's important that I mentioned that difference um, in intercession because we see here, right, from verse 4, that there is a desire that God has, which is God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's interesting the language that Paul uses when he says it's a desire that God has, right? So he didn't say that God is going to make sure that this happens, but rather he says that this is a desire that God has. But you and I know that the fact that God desires that all men should be saved does not mean that all men are saved, right? Or does not mean that all men are being saved. Despite the fact that God has this desire, despite the fact that this desire is a good desire, a lot of men are perishing every day, right? A lot of men are perishing every day. A lot of men are going to hell, even though that's not the desire of God for them. And so the third question I have then for us is, what is lacking, right? What is lacking? Why is this the case? And or you can even ask the question, why does God limit himself just to a desire? So you could say, for example, right, 
that God desires for you to be in health and for you to prosper, right? The Bible says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you a hope and a future, to give you an expected end. You could say that God desires all these things for you. But you see, we are not going to see the working out of those desires if we do not, on, as if two things do not happen. First of all, on the individual level, if we do not respond to God. So it's a question, so God desires it for us, yes. But do we also desire it, right? And not only do we also desire it, do we desire it enough that we're willing to partner with God to see it come to pass in our lives individually? But then on a corporate level, Remember, we started by saying that life is spiritual and God is spirit. So God has decided to operate from the spiritual, right? And so that means that the way that his desires will be accomplished on earth is by his influence upon the life of people on earth. That's the way the spiritual actually dominates the physical realm. It's not, it's not really automatic. It's not granted that the spiritual realm automatically dominates the physical realm. The way it works is by influence. So spirit beings in the spiritual realm um, look for agents of influence. It is the extent to which a spirit being has influence on a person's life, right? That the desires and the ability of that spirit being will be manifest in the physical creation. So that if God does not find enough people whom he can influence to birth his will on the earth, to pursue his will, to stand in the gap, to perform that reconciliatory ministry of intercession, then it's very likely that many good things that God desires will not be physically manifest. It's very likely. And it's very important for us to always consider this point. I know that for us in our African context, this is not a problem for us to understand this, right? Because we, our prayer mode by default assumes that God wants to fix every problem. And that's good. But especially in Western cultures, there can often be a sense of resignation to the tragic sense of life, you know, to that sense that, you know, there is suffering in life. So let's just take what comes. Let's take our cup the way it comes. And then sometimes we begin to, you know, um, we begin to, we begin to put on God things that have nothing to do with him. You know, we begin to say things like, oh, um, if God is so good, why did he let my grandmother die, for example? Just to give an, an example. It's not necessarily the case that God wanted your grandmother to die. It's not necessarily the case that God was even involved in her death, right? We have to realize that God is spirit and he has desires. The extent to which those desires are going to be translated in our lives, in the life of men, is down to the men that God finds that have that, that allow him to have influence through their lives, right? And the primary mode of influence that we can have because of the cross is through the ministry of intercession, that ministry of reconciliation. And we said that the ministry of intercession is not purely a prayer ministry itself, even though there's a lot of praying involved, right? 
But the ministry of intercession is a reconciliatory ministry. It's a ministry that requires a lot of going between, a lot of application, a lot of um, legal ceremonies, let's put it like this, in order to achieve a reconciliation. Okay, Stephanie, your hand is up. Did you just join us? Yes. Okay. But something you're talking about just struck me because I'm currently with a friend and she talks about um the serenity prayer. Mm -hmm. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. So there are people that are not in it in terms of intercession, there are some territories, for instance, that you cannot penetrate. Some territories that you can't, you know, pray into the kingdom or something like that. I mean, and I'm and in our lives as well, there might be some things that God wants. Sorry that we want, but God is like, you know what, just accept this, like Moses and the promised land and things like that. That place of that scenario, serenity prayer, where it is that, you know, what will be, will be. Let's just accept it as the way, the way it comes. We'll just go with the flow. What part does that play in this narrative, in this thing that you're saying at the moment? As in, is there a point in time where we go, okay, yes, now I just need to accept what's done. Do you get or what's going to happen? Okay. Well, you, you need... I think the prayer says that God helped me to, to know the things that I cannot change, right? And the things I can change and then to know the difference, something like this. To accept the things that I cannot change. Courage to um, know the... Um, something like that. Courage to accept the things and know the difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's the prayer. That's how it ends anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer is embedded itself in the in, in the prayer, right? What I was addressing earlier was that depending on what block of Christianity you're in, we usually fall into two extremes when it comes to prayer, right? In our mostly Pentecostal slash um, charismatic slash African context, we fall into the one extreme of extreme faith, right? Let's put let's call it extreme because that's really what it is, where by default, we assume that God intends to change every situation by fire and by force. In fact, even some of the languages we use in prayer gives us the impression that, you know, it's really about how loud we can pray, how much we can pray, because, you know, the thing must shift by fire and by force. And our mistake on that front is that we often do not receive the first side of it. You know, we've always said, that there are two sides of faith, right? Faith is both a gift and a calling, right? By, by When I say faith is a gift, there's an impartation of faith that must happen before the exercising of faith happens. And it is the measure of faith that God imparts for a particular project that hints you at the willingness of God to shift the matter. So we often don't know that, should I say, receptacle side of faith, we often don't even approach it too diligently and we just often jump in the exercising part of it, pleading the blood, casting out. And then we, we what we find out is that we end up for a very long time in the same circles. But I think we tried to address this a little bit last week, right? When we said that faith always begins by hearing. There must be a receiving part. So I'm supposed to 
understand by fellowshipping with God, what is God's perspective? It could be that, yes, God wants to change the situation, but the situation is, is legally complex. Let's put it like this. Because there are certain grounds that have been given to the enemy that needs to be reclaimed. And God, rather than us shouting and yelling in prayer, what God wants us to do is to identify and understand the grounds that need to be reclaimed and take practical intercessory steps. You know, remember we said intercession is not just prayer. Take practical intercessory steps to reclaim those grounds. And then our praying can become effective. So you see Jesus saying things like, if you bring your gift at the altar and there you remember, so there's a remembrance mechanism that happens at the altar. There you remember that your brother has something against you. <laughs> you know, in this extreme of faith, our thinking is to just go ahead and give and give the offering because God will shall accept, accept it somehow. But Jesus' recommendation is just leave your offering, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then you offer your offering, right? Of course, it's not always practical that we can go do that physically. But what he's trying to teach there is that um, many situations that we find ourselves in are not necessarily waiting for prayer to move them as much as they are waiting for obedience, right? Or at least aligning with God, figuring out the will of God. So that's what is missing from our overly faith-based expression of prayer. Now, on the other extreme is, I guess, what Stephanie is trying to hint at, which is what I've noticed in Christianity, especially in the West, right? Which is that there is a sense of um, unholy submission and surrender to the circumstances of life. Even when people pray here, you can see the agnosticism of the prayer or even in many times the atheism that is hidden in the prayer. Ah, we're going to pray. Let's just do it for five minutes. It's one of those things that we do. You know, but there is a resignation to the circumstances of life. And what people would rather do is to try to organize their life, organize their healthcare, organize everything around their lives in such a way that is predictable so that they can avoid the unpredictability. And then when the unpredictability happens, it's, it's about begging God to make changes or some of that. So what is missing in that expression is actually both the ability to receive the testimony of God, not just a general testimony, but the specific testimony of God about the situation and then exercise faith, a stubborn faith, a resilient faith, a violent faith. You know, Paul said to Timothy in the last chapter that the prophecies that went ahead of you, that by them you're supposed to war a good warfare. You see? So, in, in some circles, there is no prophecy that guides the warfare. In other circles, there is prophecy and there is a resignation that, okay, what will be, will be. But Paul says that the correct position is in between. Yes, there was a receiving side. Something was pronounced by God sovereignly over you, but you're not supposed to be passive on account of what was pronounced. You're supposed to war a good warfare. And then, of course, the serenity prayer, or I don't know what's called, mentions that what we need is the discernment, right? That's what we need, the discernment to know the difference. Yeah, so it's not every situation in your life and in my life 
that God intends to change immediately. I believe that God intends to change most situations, most. There are not many people that are like Paul, where God says, my grace is sufficient for you. There are some situations like that, no doubt. But I believe that God intends to change most situations. But I also believe that he doesn't intend to change most situations instantaneously. I've seen healing in people's lives take time. And when I say time, anywhere from one day <laughs> to one week to five years. You know, there is a journey, there's a process that is often in, involved in receiving from God, right? Because at the end of the day, what God is after is not just giving you gifts, but it's that through his gifts and through his promises, through his blessings, you will come to know him. And so he doesn't have a problem exposing you to a process that will not only give you something, but to help you know him when you are through with that process. Right? So it's that bridge that we need to, that we are called as priest of God to be. You know, this was the priestly assignment of the Old Testament. No matter what the case is, whether, was, whether the case was a case of leprosy or it was a case of, of false accusation or it was a case of accidental murder, the priest was the one in between that had to investigate. And based on his findings, he can he was equipped by the law and equipped by God to prescribe some recommendations. You know, even Jephthah, that carelessly made a vow that whoever comes out of his house first is going to offer to God. He, he could have alleviated himself of that oath if he had actually gone to the priest, because if he had gone to the priest, he would have found out that there's a provision for, for buying back humans with the shekels of the sanctuary. And only the priest had that knowledge and authority and could have done it, but he never ended up going to the priest and did what he wanted in the situation. Right, which we don't really know what he did in the end of the day with his daughter. Right. So just as the priest was the go-between, right, in the Old Testament, the priest was the one that would look at your leprous hand and say, No, it's not your time. Or or that will look at it and say, You know what, I pronounce you clean. That's the same honor, the same privilege that God has given us as priests in the New Testament. Right? To be able to connect to God's heart and search out the desire that's on his heart, and then position ourselves on earth to align with that desire. And that's what I want us to trust God for, that will be visible in each of our lives. Okay, does that make sense to us? Any thoughts there before we move that on? Sense. Thank you, Joshua. You're welcome. Okay. And so Paul now brings us to the heart of reconciliation, right? He says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So look at what's going on here. We said that the ministry of intercession is the ministry of bringing everything to the center of the atonement of Jesus, right? So we've been trying to explore the case. Why is it that the fact that God desires something does not necessarily mean that it comes to pass on earth? So the practical case that we're seeing here is the case of the salvation of men. So God desires all men to be saved, right? So what did God do about it? He created a pathway 
through a mediator, a heavenly mediator. Now, that heavenly mediator is, is a man, right? It's called the man Christ Jesus. And that gives us a picture that um, Jesus still retains his human appearance, in a sense, in heaven. And that's why if you look at um, John's revelation of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, you could see that even though his human features were exaggerated by his glory, positively exaggerated by his glory, you could still make out eyes and feet, you know, and and a hair white as wool. You know, his visage is like it's like the son of man. So he's still a man. And it's a it's a it's a wonderful statement that at the at the apex, at the top of a uni of the universe is one like us. Is one like us. And that's supposed to give us all the confidence that we need, that God is in control. That he has not placed us in in a world, in a context, in a situation where it is impossible for us to operate effectively. That at the heart, at the apex of life, is one like the Son of Man. And so he's able to, to equip, to strengthen, moment by moment, day by day, to make us fit, to make us able, to make us adequate for life. So this one is the only mediator, right? So anybody who will be saved, what one mediator means is that anybody who will be saved will have to come through Jesus, right? There is no other way to come. You have to come through Christ. And then he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So he's the mediator, but he's also the sacrifice at the same time, right? And he gave himself a ransom. So that's his atonement. He's the, he's the payment for all the sin, the sickness, the violence of men. But now you see that for this, his ransom, for this, his mediation that he does in heaven to be communicated to men on earth, Paul says that I was appointed a preacher. Do you see? So that as much, as much, as efficacious rather, as the ministry of Jesus is in the heavens, it needs an earthly outlet for it to be efficacious on earth also. You see, but you, you might be wondering, you know, why is Jesus in heaven and not on earth, right? Part of why, he, in the, the book of Hebrews attempts to answer that question. Part of why he's in heaven is that his presence in heaven is what gives us access to God. Right, his presence in heaven, his priesthood in the heavens, that is based on his endless life, is the basis for our access. So that's why on earth you can connect to God in heaven. The reason you can connect to God in heaven is because God came down in the form of his son and he created the access point, right? So that you can ascend. And that means that your needs can be met because Jesus is a priest forever in heaven. Every time you stay on earth and you begin to call to heaven, there is a good possibility. Sometimes you may not even know Jesus, just like Cornelius in the book of Acts, but because of his priestly activity in heaven, your prayers can have an impact in heaven. But then the, the other way around is, how can God's desires be done on earth? You see, it's a, it's a, it's supposed to be a round trip. The, the mediation of Jesus 
in heaven means that you and I have access to heaven and our needs can be met, right? But how can God's God's desires, the desires of God for which he even gave his son in the first place, how can it be accomplished on earth? It is the way to happen is that there will also be priests on earth whose lives will become the access point from which the desires of God can be received and expressed. Does that make sense? I hope it was not confusing. So Jesus' ministry on earth gives us access to heaven. Our ministry, or rather Jesus' ministry in heaven, gives us access to heaven. Our calling on earth gives Jesus access to the earth. Of course, that's not to say that Jesus is restricted in any way from, from appearing to men. You know, but that's a ministry that he has delegated to you and I. So Paul says, for this cause, I was appointed a preacher so that through my life, that mediation of Jesus can reach men. Right. And you see, you and I don't have to be preachers and apostles for us to also be ambassadors of Christ, like Paul calls us in Second Corinthians. Right. All we have to do is to be Christians, to be new creatures who have received the life of Christ for us to be his ambassadors. And our primary business is the ministry of reconciliation. So when Jesus Christ, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is contingent, is dependent on a people on earth. Yes, on a person on earth that decides that through my life, the kingdom of God will come. And so that's why it's the case that the kingdom of darkness can thrive in a family until somebody arises in that family and begins to cry out, your kingdom come. Now, when that happens, a protocol of recovery begins. A protocol of recovery that will not have ever started if someone in the physical space did not stand up and cry out, your kingdom come. So do you see the partnership that completes the will of God? That the ministry of Jesus in the heavens means that my needs can be met. But then the ministry of my life on earth means that his needs can be met. My greatest need is salvation. You know? And his ministry in the heaven makes it possible. And his greatest desire for me is my sanctification. And it is through that ministry that that can be worked out in my life. And my sanctification covers everything from my joy to my peace, to my health, to my prosperity, to everything. It is through his heavenly priesthood that all of that can be mediated towards on the earth. Okay? All right. So that was the easy part of First Thessalonians chapter 2, or rather First Timothy chapter 2. So let's get to the hard part as we close. All right, from verse 8 to verse 15. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold, or pearls or costly clothing, 
but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So, what is your reaction to these verses? I probably don't need to ask you what, what stands out to you in the verses. <laughs> but what is your reaction to these verses? Hmm. <laughs> A lot of controversy anyways. Um, but one thing I would point out is, uh, <clears throat> one thing that I, I observe is um, Paul itemizing uh, practical points for order. Right. And mm -hmm. I would, I would, I would, I'm looking at this from the context of this particular church he's referring to. Right. And he's pointing out contexts for order because he's advising Timothy, who is the administrator of this particular church. Mm -hmm. He's giving Timothy practical steps in view of his age. And some of the challenges he will experience because Paul was already here. And I'm sure Paul is speaking from experiences of the past. So mm -hmm. uh, from the place you read, uh, he's just giving, pointing out some very practical steps, you know, to the young man and telling him, take note of, take note of this. These are things to take note of in order to ensure, because this is in view of the understanding that his duty here is to defend doctrine. His duty yeah. here, the reason I remember from the very first chapter we read, Paul said the reason why he wants him to stay here is to uphold and defend doctrine from unruly people. So I'm I'm still bearing in mind that he's still within the context of that that he's telling him everything he's listing out here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary of what's going on. Um, it can be very tricky, like you said, to get caught up in the details, right, of exactly what this verse is saying. But it's good to take that zoomed out perspective, like you've highlighted, that his primary business in Ephesus is to establish order in their public life, but also in their, in their personal lives, so that their lives can adequately represent the ministry of reconciliation that they're called to to model and to reveal to the rest of the Gentile world, right? And he's addressing the primary problems that are peculiar to Ephesus of that time and peculiar to this church that are that were a threat, right, to that order and that were a threat to the gospel. And obviously, the problem of a lack of submission and rebellion was at the heart of it. Okay, so we can take it one verse after the other. So verse, verse 8 says, I desire therefore, therefore. So 
Therefore, it's everything that we've explained previously, right? That in light of the fact that our ministry on earth is what creates an avenue, is what creates a premise, is what creates a platform, an opportunity for God to express himself. Paul says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without wrath and doubting. It's interesting that he mentions without wrath and doubting. So he's referring, when he says wrath, he's referring to um, a very practical issue that can dilute the holiness of a man's heart, right? Which is any any sense of bitterness or contention that comes into your priesthood, it can dilute it and make it ineffective. And then doubting is what we have talked about earlier, which is the, the inability to exercise biblical faith. We've always said that there are two sides to faith, the receiving side and the exercising part. And in the exercising part, Jesus said, have faith in God. And that's, and that's a, that's not a passive expression, right? That means exercise faith in God. So that when we pray, we're supposed to remove our limitations, our doubts from the prayer and trust that if my hands are holy, right? If I'm not living in rebellion against God as a man, right? If I'm not living in rebellion against God, then I can come to God. In prayer. Okay. Yudi asked a question here in the chat. Is there a reason you leave out the word day before the word men in verse 8, also in verse 9, for women? So he's referring specifically here to the men, right, of the church. So he seems to be making a very clear dichotomy of, of responsibilities in Ephesus. And going back to what Sammy said, this is for Ephesus, right? He seems to be making a very clear distinction for who should pray in public and who should be quiet in public. And he says the men should do it. Now, I don't want to go into some of the cultural and historical background of that culture, of the culture of Ephesus, that made it necessary for Paul to give such an extreme instruction. But obviously, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he was not mistaken at all in this instruction that he was given. But there was, this is Ephesus, right? Where, like Sammy mentioned last week, Diana, the great goddess, was. And his, the historical perspective is that most of the pagan cults of that day were led by women. And apart from the spiritual implications of that, the, the Christological implications of that, let's put it like this, the implication of that for, for Christianity was a subversion of authority that was inherent. It's like the reason why Satan set up such a system, right? Such a system of debauchery and rebellion that at the head of the system was women, was a deliberate turning over of the order, right? Of God's created plan for men and women. It was a deliberate distortion of it and destruction of it. And the people he's writing to are not seasoned Christians. The people he's writing to are not Jewish Christians who have a, a record, a background of God's speakings and God's dealings with men. 
the people he's writing to are people whose only orientation is that pagan orientation. So this is just a little sprinkle of historical perspective, right? Because a lot of these scriptures that put very strict restrictions on the role of women in the church, um, the language used in them is very tied to the historical and cultural context of that time. And that's one of the instruments for discerning them. So in verse 9, he says, in like manner also. By the way, like you, does that answer your question about omitting day in the sentence? Just let me know. And then in verse 9, he says, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. So he preaches modesty because in that over-sexualized culture, modesty, especially among the women, in light of the ritualistic cultures and worship of that day, um, was not was not the public norm. Let's put it like this. And it was very easy for that culture, for that practice to flow into the church because the people who were deeply rooted in it, right, were were the people who were now Christians. So these are not saints that came down from heaven to become Christians in Ephesus. These were people who had only known a certain amount of life. So Paul is addressing the way they braided their hair, the amount of flashiness that they displayed in the gathering and what they considered to be worthy of attention and respect, costly clothing and all of that, because this was a practical problem in Ephesus. But he's saying that instead of connecting to the roots of the city, I want you to display godliness with good works. So this is this this is the at in Ephesus at this time, this is the role of reconciliation that the women were supposed to play. Right? They were supposed to be a witness in that society that was completely different from the thing that that society had become, especially for women, right? So those two verses are not very troublesome. But then the troublesome ones are from verse 11 to verse 15, right? Where it says that, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So again, the first thing I'll say here is that um, this scripture must not be interpreted in isolation because if we interpret it in isolation, then we can, it's very easy for us to extrapolate the things that are said here, right? And apply them to all the church in all the ages, in all the locations. And if we do that, we're going to be contradicting even the New Testament itself, including the Old Testament. Right. So if you read First Corinthians chapter 11, right, where Paul was talking about the head covering of a woman, it was very clear in the Corinthian church that Paul did not refuse the women from praying in public. Right. He didn't um, refuse them from participating in public worship. His major concern was their submission. Right. That women should always exercise any kind of ministry within the church from a covered position, from a place of spiritual submission. 
because this is the this is the order that God has set. Now we we've talked about this principle of submission before when we did I think First Peter, I believe chapter three also, and we said that. One of the things to understand when we're dealing with submission is to understand what the apostle is not saying, right? The apostle is not saying all women are subject to all men in all places, right? The context of submission is always the context of marriage and the context of the church, right? And then submission does not only apply to women. So you see, in a church... There is somebody who's set as the elder and everybody else, whether they are male or they are female, right? Submits to that eldership. The reason why women are singled out, like we've seen in these letters, is because there was a real problem of usurping of authority. And Paul had to make the double case, right? That especially as women, it was even more important to comport themselves in the house of God in a submissive manner. It doesn't mean that they were the only ones who were supposed to submit. Right? There were a lot of men that were not in position of authority that were supposed to submit. The New Testament also itself does not forbid women from holding leadership positions like some people assert. Does not forbid women from preaching. Does not forbid women from speaking or from praying. The book of Acts is filled with women who played critical roles. So if we take Priscilla and her husband Aquila, right? The New Testament makes it clear that both of them together corrected Apollos, right? When he was still preaching the baptism of John. But in Priscilla's case, we see that she was a woman clearly under authority and a woman that had been taught by God and, be, sorry, by Paul. And because of that covering, she could stand in her place, right? In this significant place in which she stood in the New Testament. Paul speaks about um, Junior in, at the end of the book of Romans, for example. He speaks about Phoebe, who was, who was um, a highly regarded person that was sent to deliver the letter to the Romans. Most likely the one who was sent to deliver the letter to the Romans, Right? Um, in the book of Acts, we read about the daughters of Philip, right, who prophesied um, in the book of Acts. Um, and people don't prophesy in their bedroom. You know, they prophesy, and if it's captured in scripture, they prophesy in the context of the church. They prophesy in the context of the body of Christ. So in Paul's personal ministry, in his personal life, and in New Testament ministry, it's very clear that women could take positions of leadership in the church, right? Positions of instruction in the church. The balance, however, is that the place of authority, the place of authority, and by that I mean the place of final authority is never given to the woman in the church. And this is where a lot of extremists, right? Extreme liberation liberals in the church miss it. You know, where we feel like, oh, um, let's let's find every woman we can find and anoint them and put them in, in ministry and make them leaders of things. The New Testament is very clear about it, that the place of authority, right, in the church, the place of final authority 
is in God's design is male. And it's not a place of advantage, neither is it a place of superiority. We've also always said that the principle of submission traces itself all the way back to the Godhead. And that's why it's not helpful to sidestep or avoid the topic of submission because it's the, the marker for submission is all the way in the Godhead, right? The fact that Jesus submits to the Father and at the end of the age, he will submit the kingdom to the Father does in no way diminish his value as a person. It's just a position. That's how the kingdom of God works. That's what allows the love of God, right? That's harmony that has existed in the Godhead from eternity past. That's what allows it to continue, that principle of submission. That's what allows it to continue. That's what allows the Father to invest everything that he is in the Son because the Son in turn submits to the Father. And that's why Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, advises women, right, to say, wife, submit to your husband. And his reference for all of that advice, because he wasn't married, his reference for all of that advice was the Godhead, the relationship that Christ has to the church. So what happens is that the woman is not supposed to have a final authority in the church. And part of why this is a very important principle is because the reference that Paul gives for this, you know, it, it would have been different if the reference that Paul gave to this is a reference from creation, sorry, it's a reference from culture. You know, there are certain things that Paul teaches and he gives the reference from culture. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, judge for yourself. Is it not a shame for a woman to appear, you know, in public with, without her hair covered? So that tells you that he, if his reference is culture, then what he's speaking about is primarily cultural, right? And so it's bound to a civilization, right? And in and you can only make sense of what he's saying if you are in that culture and in that civilization. And that's why there's no requirement in the New Testament for women to always cover their hair during church, right? Because that statement was made specifically in the context of culture. But in this verse, when he speaks about final authority in the church, right? Final authority in the home, final authority in the church. His reference point is not culture. His reference point is the beginning. And that's what makes it difficult to sidestep this script, this particular scripture, right? Or to not see it for what it is saying, right? So he says that Adam was formed first. And then if... And it was not a mistake that God made to do it like this. It was a deliberate decision. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There's so much there that we cannot touch. But what he's saying essentially is that Adam was not deceived, right? What happened to Adam was that he rebelled against God. And so even though the woman, right, was the one who was deceived, and she took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. The New Testament never blames Eve for the fall. Right? Because even though you can say, she, let's say you say she usurped authority or Adam submitted to his wife instead of his wife submitting to him or whatever. However you put it, at the end of the day, the sole responsibility for the fall lies 
on Adam. You know, it's his name that's spread all over the scripture as the one whom God holds responsible for the fall. When God came into the garden after they had eaten of the fruit, his his inquiry was to Adam. His inquiry was to Adam. It was only when he blamed his wife and said, oh, the woman you gave to me has done this and this and this, that God now got even more upset with him. Right? So the man eventually in the home and in the church has final responsibility towards God, right? To answer to God eventually. So it doesn't even matter if a woman sets up, is set up at the head of a church. At the end of the day, in God's hierarchy, he's going to hold the man whom he called to hold that position or to be the covering over that woman. He's going to hold that man responsible, right? This is how the kingdom of God works. And that's something that's important for us to see. Just the same way that the topic of prayer is spiritual, right? And we cannot discern or understand the topic of prayer if we do not understand the spiritual nature of life. We must see that when we're dealing with authority and submission, we're dealing with a spiritual reality. And this is why our culture, our generation, cannot relate to these two things, authority and submission. Because there's nothing in our physical life, right, that makes those two principles obvious. And we've seen that the principle of authority and submission progressively has been degraded at all levels of our society, not just at the family level or at the church level, but also even at the governmental level, you know, rebellion against government, rebell rebellion against teachers, rebellion against everything that signifies authority. And it has almost become ingrained in our minds that we can actually rebel. But this is not God's order. God's kingdom is not built on individualistic opinions, right? It's built on the sovereign authority of God. So if I am called to submit, right, that's not anything that I can do with my natural strength. With my natural wisdom. If I do it with my natural strength or, or with my natural wisdom, I'm going to produce something that is not beautiful, something that's not the perfect will of God, something that's not in line with the pattern of heaven. Some people have wrongly submitted to injustice and to brutality in the name of submission, right? Because submission is not an earthly thing. If I'm going to submit, it's going to have to come from a spiritual conviction. My submission is going to have to be first to God, right? And then on account of my submission to God, I submit to his physical authority that he has placed. And my submission to God becomes my reference point for submission to any man. Even when Ephesians 6 says children, obey your parents, it adds the condition of in the Lord. Okay, so submission is spiritual and it's going to look different for each of us. We are not called to submit to injustice. We are not called to submit to brutality, but we are called to submit to God and to trust him to then show us how that works itself out, right? In our daily dealings with men. Okay? So this is the application of what Paul is saying for us, right? In the historical perspective, 
the application for the women was don't teach. And don't teach there, there are many reasons for it. Like we've said, there's a historical reason, but there's also the theological reason. What we have today as the compendium of New Testament doctrine was not yet developed in written form at that point. So teaching at that point had a very serious weight of authority in the church. And for discernment purposes, Paul says, don't teach, especially in this church. Okay. Yeah, that was a bit of explaining. So I would like to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Any thoughts or questions? Yeah, Sami. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Josh. You did. Uh, thank you for due diligence on this. I just wanted to paint a little picture. Um, so um, there was something you raised which is very succinct. And I think in sometimes in these things that people take out of context, if we connect the dots of all these stories, that's connecting each church and also the story in the Acts of the Apostles to make a lot of sense. And like you said, Ephesus, the the main goddess of the town is Diana. And a bit of historical context, um, Diana is was a twin. Um, she was born a twin, so she's the twin sister of Apollos. And according to mythology, she was born before Apollos. She was born nine days before Apollos. So in this culture now, it is assumed, and which is one of the reasons why most of these cultures consider women as preeminent over men. And like you rightly pointed out, is Paul trying to let them know that your your is is the order of doctrine. You understand the the doctrine of what you are being brought into is not that of Diana, but is that of what God, who created heaven and earth, has done. Um, I, it it reminded me, and just to also uh, point something, it reminded me of. I know we will get there too, but like you rightly pointed that in chapter five of this same place, he was advising. Um, um, Timothy on how to speak and how to deal with certain people, all for the sake of order as well. I can't remember the translation or the narrative where there was some sort of commentary about that in this place, Paul was referring to young women who are converts. So for example, in that verse 11, I, I can't remember the exact one that I've mentioned it now. It was saying that the emphasis there was on young women because we know in different of Paul's letters, he commended more matured women. Matured now we are talking about is in the faith for them, for their responsibilities as deacons, as teachers. And like you mentioned, Aquila and Priscilla, the couple, and some other names you mentioned. So I, I don't want this to contribute that. The emphasis here, for example, number one, verse 11, is on um, new convert ladies, especially those who felt we were superstars under the worship of Diana, and they will try to superimpose that here. And then the, the verse 13 was him dealing with the Gnostic view of those um, religious syncretism, those taking over the doctrine of Greek mythology into the faith and saying that, oh, the, the, God, the patron goddess of this city is primordial to her brother. So therefore, women are primordial to men. And he was now itemizing to them that, look, this is not the order of creation. So I just, I just, I thought, just thought to give a bit more color to that from a historical perspective, so it makes sense to the rest of us listening. Yeah, thank you so much, Sami. Very good point.
Um, Yudi, your hand was up. Um, yeah, so I have a little question, right? Mm I've -hmm. heard a number of times when um, it is said, oh, this was Paul's opinion, right? Like when we look at the aspect of marriage, this was what he thought and this was not God telling him and all of that because if we look at um, verse 12, he's saying, and I do not permit. Yes, I understand the context and
is what actually aggravated this situation of submission. That because of the fall, submission became an even more necessary element of redemption. Right? So Jesus himself practiced submission. Now, we are not only called to submit to God. If we are actually going to be Christians, we are also called to submit to his providence, right? To the very circumstances in which he plants us. Remember that in Jesus' life, he had to grow up for 30 years and he wasn't doing ministry. That means that he practically didn't have authority over many people, including his parents, right? Because he was not fully independent in that time. And one of those times, when they found him in the temple and he was talking with those Pharisees and all of that, the Bible says that even though he rebuked them and told them, are you not aware that I should be about my father's business? The Bible makes a commentary that he followed them home and he was subject to them. There's no reason why the creator of the universe should be subject to Mary and Joseph, right? And if we can summarize the curriculum of Christianity, it's from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus positions himself as the example of submission, which is why in the book of Ephesians, when Paul preaches about headship, Jesus is the perfect example. When he preaches about submission, Jesus is the perfect example. So that whether or not, I'm, whether I'm called to be the head or I'm called to submit, Jesus is my perfect example. Right. So um, um, Christianity, at the heart of Christianity, there are a few principles that are at the heart of Christianity, but one of them is submission. In fact, God sometimes calls us to submit to circumstances. If you if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, <laughs> go two miles. Right? If somebody slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek. The reason why it doesn't make sense to us is that natural man um, is prideful. And submission is not our natural disposition as men. But it's it's a core element of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It's a test that is going to come to our holiness. And you see, the extent to which we are submitted to God is the extent to which we are going to exercise the dominion of God right on the earth. And all of this is not to say that women cannot have, because again, people take this to the extreme and make this absolute, right? But if we read through the Bible itself, the Old Testament, you're going to read in the book of Judges that the spirit of the Lord came upon Deborah and she judged Israel. And when you read the storyline, there's no demarcation, there's no punctuation, there's no difference between the leadership, quality, capacity of Deborah in that season, the effect of her leadership, the number of years that the land had rest after her leadership. There's no inferiority in her leadership that is highlighted. But the thing that made her a leader is not that she took it upon herself to become a leader. It's that the spirit of the Lord, that's what made every judge. And I think that's the that's the extreme mistake of the, should I say, ultra-Orthodox. Let's put it like this, right? Because if there is a woman upon whom the spirit of the Lord comes, then it means that God has intended that this is a vessel he's going to use to his church. But the, but the responsibility 
now lies on that woman. If you notice all the all the instructions about submission, there's no instruction that is given to the man to make the woman submit. The instruction is given to the woman always, right? As gifted, as talented as you are, do not operate outside male covering, right? And try to find out what that covering represents in your life, right? And operate on that because that is God's due order. God has no problems investing his grace in any woman, which he has shown through the Bible, right? And that grace empowers the woman to exercise leadership in the church. But it's up to her to honor God by her submission. And the extent to which this happens is going to determine the extent to which there will be a, a pure stream of God's spirit that flows. Okay, does that address your question? Yes, it does. It does. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. So it's not in the realm of opinion. Um, you know, as somebody who preaches the gospel, this is not the kind of um, verses that we like to preach because, um, yeah, I would probably not have written it like this if I was the one who wrote it, right? But part of what it means to trust God is to trust that his wisdom is right for us in every age and in every season. Okay, verse 15 says, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So this is perhaps, arguably, the most difficult scripture in the whole of the New Testament, or one of the most difficult scriptures. But just to touch on it very quickly, Paul does not say that she will be saved through childbearing. So childbearing is not a means of salvation, right? Salvation is by faith in Jesus. So that's the first thing. And every time we read the word soteria in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, which is a word for saved, it's important that we understand saved from what? From what, right? Because salvation has different expressions. So that's why you see in the New Testament salvation used in the past tense, in the future tense, in the present tense. Because there's salvation from different things. You can be saved from the power of death, but that's different from being saved from the power of sin. And that's different from being saved from the presence of sin. And that's different from being saved from the attack of the enemy. Right? So she will be saved in childbearing. So the salvation that Paul is referring to here also is not eternal salvation. Because then it's not only women who go through childbearing that can be saved eternally. In my understanding, in my opinion... What I believe that Paul is using metaphoric language here because the whole issue of submission in scripture is highlighted primarily at the fall. It is the fall that necessitated this position of submission so that the very existence of the need for this demarcation of who is the head, who is the final authority, right? And who is... Um, and who is supposed to submit, the very necessity for it reminds every woman and reminds every man of the fall. 
right? Because it was in that process of childbearing that God placed the desire of the woman to always be towards her husband. So that childbearing, right, is one of the very, if not the most practical expression of the need, of the inbuilt, innate need that a woman has to have a loyal, trustworthy head over her life. It's such a vulnerable space, such a vulnerable time, such a vulnerable season that it, it serves as the perfect illustration of the need for a woman to have a head, right? A man over her life. But what he's saying when he says she'll be saved in childbearing, I believe, of course, because the scripture itself does not give us enough clues to be able to adequately interpret it. But I believe is what he's saying is that there is a redemptive element. There is a redemptive element to childbearing, right? That that process, you know, that process, no matter how easy your pregnancy is, <laughs> that process is a journey. It's a process you cannot escape from. It lasts for nine months. And when the nine months are over, you begin another process of raising a child, right? There is there is a redemptive element to that process that positions a woman spiritually to be able to function in a capacity that she could not function prior to going through that experience. Spiritually. Spiritually. All of this stuff is spiritual, right? It's not physical. There is a redemptive aspect to childbearing so that in many in many churches or church setups, for example, women that are ordained um, elders are those who have who are in a marriage, who have had children, and they are ordained to be in positions of authority that they may not have been in if they had not gone through that experience in Christ. So it's as though this is a redemptive open door that Paul leaves open a redemptive pathway for women to be able to exercise the authority that God gave them from creation, right? Remember, when God was blessing man in creation, there was no distinction. He said, he, the Bible says that male and female made he, made that he made them male and female and he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue. So the dominion mandate was given to them but the distinction of submission was introduced into the picture on account of the fall and paul is suggesting here that the process of childbearing is a redemptive process in the hand of god that can restore a woman to that place in the church of god where they can exercise the full authority of creation that's the best interpretation that is consistent with all the other teachings of scripture that I can have, I can provide at the moment to that verse. We bless you, precious Father, for your word that challenges us, but changes us and transforms us, Lord. I pray that you make us a house of prayer, a people of prayer, that you plant in us a hunger for prayer, so that we can become agents, effective agents of your reconciliation work on earth, Lord. 
And I pray that concerning the issues of order, of authority, and of submission, Lord, I pray that you open our eyes. I pray for each one of us that these topics will not just be intellectual, will not just be areas of dispute and disagreement, or will not just be something that we just surrender to without necessarily engaging with. But I pray, Lord, that you open our hearts and you open our minds and that you speak to us, Lord, in these topics, that you lead us into true submission in the places where you're calling us to submit, that you show us what that means, what that looks like practically in our lives. And for those of us whom you've placed in the place of leadership, in the place of headship, in the place of steering and stewarding the church and the home, I pray, O oh God, that you open our eyes to also see what that looks like so that our lives will glorify you, Lord. Teach us by your spirit and let your name be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.